Welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. I'm Nicholas Wittstock, graduate student in political science at the University of Washington. We're recording this podcast in September of 2020, and the title of today's episode is Science and Evidence-Based Policymaking. I have here with me the organizers and founders of the Political Economy Forum. That's Rachel Heath, professor of economics at UW. Hello, Rachel. Uh, hi, Nick. Also here with us is James Long, Professor of Political Science at UW. Hello, James. Hi, Nick. And finally, we have Victor Minaldo, also Professor of Political Science. Hello, Victor. Hey, guys. So a lot of the recent posts on the forum's blog have stressed the importance of science for politics and evidence-based policymaking for pretty much everything. And I know a lot of you have very strong opinions on this topic, but I would like to start with James and um, get a sense for what you mean when you talk about science and evidence-based policymaking. These are quite vague and clunky concepts potentially. So what are we talking about here concretely? It, it is, Nick, and that's a good question because every time I teach this, I have to actually remind myself and go back and say, well, what, what do we mean by science and, and how are we using the scientific method in political economy? And I you know, these are big words that people use a lot, but I don't actually think they're very obvious in terms of what they mean generally or in terms of how they might actually be applied in the research and teaching that we do. So let me, let me first kind of say what I think generally the important takeaway points for science are that guide our teaching and work in political economy. The first thing is that to me, science is a language. You know, it's like German or French or English. It's a language that people who speak that language, when they come across similar words, they have the same idea of what that word is indicating in, in terms of the concept that it means. So I think science is a language, is a type of language. I also think science is a method of inquiry. And what I mean by that is that science guides how we can try to seek truth or how we can at least reject things that seem that are false um, or reject some things and, and, and try to muddle through to an answer um, uh, where, where we get partial truths or things that help uh, guide us to, to greater and greater knowledge. Now, let me first say that science is different than other methods of inquiry in this way. Religion is a different method of inquiry. The way that you gain truth in religion is very different than science. In religion, it can be through the reading and interpretation of religious texts or listening to sermons by religious leaders or receiving divine revelation. But that's, di that's a different way to understand truth and gain knowledge than in science. So how, does it, how is it done in science? Well, science uses theories um, and theories can come from previous science. Scientists' theories can kind of come from the world that we observe and, you, and be developed from things that we're observing and, and intuitions that we might have. Theories can also just kind of come from inspiration. You know, you're in the bathtub, you're in the shower, you have a dream and something appears and sort of inspires you to develop a theory. And from that theory, we basically derive hypotheses that are testable in a way that makes science very different than religion, which is that the testing of the hypotheses or the predictions that come out of those theories are falsifiable. Meaning that science gives us a way to try to gain knowledge by testing hypotheses when the hypotheses will tell us whether something appears to be right or whether it will at least reject something that is wrong. And we will know whether or not we're right or wrong in our hypothesis testing. We'll know whether or not we're wrong. And anyone speaking the language of science will be able to see that. It won't be based on our own ideology. It won't be based on us imparting divine revelation to other people. It will be because they speak the language of science, they will be able to objectively understand that the hypothesis we tested was, was or was not proven to, or was or was not suggestive of being true or being true on average, or at least rejecting what the previous baseline hypothesis was or what the counterfactual explanation is. Okay, these are all ways in which to think about and words that we use to talk about falsifiability. Now, religion doesn't have falsifiability. There's no way for a Christian to falsify Christianity. There's no way for a Muslim to falsify Islam. And that's why when Muslims and Christians talk to each other about their own beliefs, they're really not speaking the same language, okay? Because for a Christian to believe what a Muslim believes or vice versa, they would have to speak the language of Islam and believe in Islam or speak the language of Christianity and believe in Christianity. For science, it's speaking the language of science and believing in the importance of falsifiability. And related then to political economy is that we then in political economy proceed with this method or this method of inquiry by testing hypotheses about political and economic 
things that we care about, theories that we have, and then we gather data to do so. And we can gather all sorts of data from all parts of the world and all different levels of units of analysis. And the data that we're gonna primarily capture is gonna be something related to you know, the political world or something related to markets. But we can apply the same type of method of inquiry that a, you know, a physicist would use or a chemist would use in the lab where they are also trying to test falsifiable hypotheses and test them in the political and economic world. So that's how I think of science and how it relates to, to political economy is really being about a language that other scientists speak and can share and then understand a similar set of concepts, as well as a method of inquiry where people are testing uh, falsifiable hypotheses with actual data and then rejecting the things that aren't true and then trying to find from, from that hypothesis testing further ways to get closer to truth and knowledge based on falsifiability. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So um, it sounds to me like you're suggesting that what science really boils down to is making clear statements about how things work and then see and interrogate and test and try to ascertain whether that actually conforms to what reality sends back to you in signals as a result. Yeah, and, it's, um, and what the conforming to reality really is, is not, I mean, truth is a big word. It's not so much that this is true. It's more that these other things are probably wrong. Gotcha. Okay. So in the context of political economy, how does this work in practice? Rachel, I know you're doing a lot of work related to development economics. How does this process that James is describing work in practice in this field? Yeah, and I think one um, kind of um, one thing that I was thinking of is, is James was um, kind of describing his his view of uh, science, which I definitely agree with, is um, the evolution of how kind of economic policymaking has um, kind of used <laughs> used science. So that um, you know, I wasn't an economist in say the you know 1980s and earlier, but my my understanding is that policy recommendations from institutions like, say, the World Bank, which I've previously worked for, so I kind of, you know, know, know it, um, at least kind of how it is today, it was much more based on um, whether it was ideology or, you know, kind of a genuine kind of, um, a genuine belief, there was less sense of kind of testing what, you know, what they, what the World Bank was recommending to low-income countries to, you know, to, to, to do. And as economics has gotten, you know, just more empirical, there's more data, there's, you know, a greater focus on kind of rigorous causal identification, you know, if you're going to kind of recommend a policy, how, you know, kind of what empirical evidence suggests that, you know, that policy, you know, actually has the causal impact that we, we hope it does. And so, and I think now there's, you know, kind of much more, you know, I, I was talking about the World Bank, the World Bank, you know, spends, you know, a lot of attention, you know, doing randomized controlled trials of, you know, different policies that they, you know, that they might be recommending. So it's um, using kind of, you know, tested policies, uh, rigorously tested policies um, in a way much more than, than in the past. Okay, that's interesting. So how, does this always work, this process of testing a policy first or testing policies on a smaller scale before they're implemented on a larger scale? Does this ever go awry or is this a foolproof method? <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's a good question. Like, I think awry might be, um, might not be the word I use, but I think it's, it, it's still not, um, I mean, I think there still is a role for, um, you know, when you're kind of suggesting a policy be, say, scaled up to a whole country, th there still is a role for untested assumptions, uh, untestable assumptions, or at least assumptions that aren't test with the, you know, the budget or the time that, that anybody has before they're implemented. Um, and what I mean is that, you know, kind of a realistic kind of budget <laughs> for most any project, they would, you know, the people implementing it would pilot it and, you know, ideally more than one location, you know, maybe several, but, you know, kind of, but then, you know, if say the World Bank is going to make a recommendation to, you know, to the whole country, you've got to kind of, you know, you've got to kind of rely on, you know, a little bit more on theory to, um, to kind of say, you know, how might we think this policy that we've been able to test in certain circumstances, how might it work in, in others? That doesn't have to be an entirely kind of a policy entirely based on guesswork. You can kind of, you know, maybe there's, you know, 
the policy has been tried nationwide in other places and you might try to extrapolate from those other places. So, you know, it can still be kind of, you know, grounded in, in empirical truths, but like, you know, there, I guess you can never kind of, if you're recommending a certain policy, you can never have as fully, you know, tested it in the exact circumstance that it'll be implemented in as you would like. Right, that makes sense. Let's move forward to Victor. Uh, Victor, I know you've done a lot of work with policymakers directly in uh, trying to teach different methods of how to make better evidence-based policies. Can you speak about that a little bit? Sure. You know, what I tend to do when I speak to policymakers, especially young ones, aspiring ones, is to think about the nuts and bolts of how to do evidence-based policymaking. And the folks I encounter worry about regulating the economy. So that's what I can speak to a bit. The economy of either the United States or their own countries, because I've spoken and taught this stuff to a lot of international policymakers. And I actually like to break it down into four components. So the first is to have fluency about the details of the policy uh, landscape of the debate over policy. The second is to use the tools of political economy to think about winners and losers, uh, the winners and losers from the policies uh, that are being uh, advanced. Third is to think about microeconomics. So to think about things like you know, what are the supply and demand curves involved, let's say, with the intended regulations? What are the trade-offs involved? And even better, the strategic type of behavior you might anticipate as a consequence of the policy. So, you know, the adjustments that rational actors might make to avoid or lessen the impact of or even change a policy if it adversely affects them. Uh, and finally, and this speaks back to what James began with and what Rachel elucidated, the scientific method. A research design and, and data to judge how regulation and deregulation will affect an economy and society. How you might translate a policy question about what the government should do into research questions and strategies about the real world effect of policies. And I can elucidate any of these points if you'd like, if that would help. Uh, we'll definitely do that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I would like to know, though, or I would like to press all of you on this question of, is science then the, uh, the best way to make good policy? Is there no way for science to uh, create bad policy? Is that something that is somehow always immediately or over time sort of uh, sifted out of the system? Science is always good because of a word that Rachel used, which is evolution. And this matters to science in general, but it also matters to policymaking. So the thing about science is falsifiability means the things that we thought were true that, that, science, that a scientific method produced for us, we, may, we can use science to say that they're not true. You know, there's no future divine revelations in a religion after, you know, after a religious text has been made, after, you know, a prophet has, has preached something. There are interpretations in the modern period, but there's no evolution of religious beliefs as a method of inquiry, right? But science is not like that. Science actually thrives on evolution. So Newton is developing theories about how he thinks the universe works, and those were laws until Einstein. And then Einstein finds things that are not consistent with what Newtonian physics would have suggested. It doesn't mean that the scientific method was bad for Newton to use. It just means that science helps evolve and improve itself again by finding more and more things that we thought we were right about and now that we can show are probably wrong. And I think for policymaking, this is critical, allowing evolution to be a strength of science and a strength of policymaking rather than a weakness. And so, you know, Rachel was talking about scaling up. If you have a micro intervention that works in one area of a country or you have an intervention that works in an entire country and then you do scale it up or you try it in another country, the fact that it may not work perfectly there is not necessarily a fault of science as a method of inquiry. It could be a fault of a lot of different things, and it could be that the science itself wasn't done very well. But that's good, right? Now, if we do it in a second country or a third country or we scale it up, we just have more and more evidence that allows us to try to hone in on exactly how truth, how truthy or truthiness we thought we were before, how, how much we're able to reject the ways in which we were wrong before. 
And I think that science, that is science's greatest strength is that it always is evolving. It's always building on itself. And I think that's absolutely critical in the policy world to always be learning and improving, but not rejecting, not rejecting simply because the second time you did something, it didn't necessarily confirm, conform to the first time, then rejecting the entire enterprise of science altogether. Just say the one thing that I'll add to, to James's point, which I don't want to say I'm time when science per se is bad in policymaking, but maybe a very specific kind of, um, you know, kind of reliance on one specific type of science is, and this goes back to, you know, the kind of external validity scale up question as well, is I'm now forgetting what branch or, or, or what agency in the U.S. recommended when we're talking about colleges going back under COVID. They said, well, it, it's, it's not been proven to work to have universal testing when students come to campus. So we're, we're not gonna recommend it, <laughs> which I think you know, a lot of people kind of disagreed with. And so I don't wanna say that you know, it, it was, they were trying to use science there and that was wrong, but it was kind of a very specific kind of science in the sense that, you know, well, this, hasn't, this exact policy hasn't been tried before. So you know, try it and kind of proven to work. So, so it's, you know, it's not, it's not worth doing. And so I think, you know, but, but I think you could also say that, you know, science actually suggested that that policy should be um, in place because, you know, in general kind of, you know, there's evidence that, you know, testing is, is very important for restraining the, the spread of coronavirus. So I think it's, the problem is not using science, but maybe kind of relying on, you know, kind of has that exact same policy, you know, been tested before you know, extrapolating kind of from reasonably kind of similar um, experiences. Uh, just to quickly interject here, I like what um, Rachel is saying about, uh, yeah, testing, not being able to test specific policies. But what I'm hearing a lot from what all of you are saying is that um, science must be used, science must be used by policymakers. But what I really want to um, focus in on who is doing the science here and who is implementing the policies. Who are we talking about concretely here, Victor? Well, I can tell you what actually happens versus what ideally, if I had my druthers, I wish would happen. Please. Uh, what actually happens is that ideologues, partisans, and special interests tend to implement policies because they're well organized and can control the narrative. Um, and stakeholders have theories of the world and ideological views, but they have no incentives or tools to actually test those uh, theories and views. Um, they are looking for a specific outcome, and they're looking for a specific outcome usually that distributes benefits to them, or that flatters them, or that helps powerful people. So how it should be done is that policymakers should incorporate political economy uh, into policymaking and realize that's what's happening and find a way to put things on neutral terms. Find a way maybe to outsource to those who can adjudicate debates between different stakeholders who favor, who favor regulation versus deregulation, for example, right? Uh, and that's where I think actually, Rachel is often so modest uh, about uh, the contributions of economics, but I think this is where economics has a large role to play in terms of economists, they do play a part in, um, in uh, let's say, macroeconomic policies in many countries, especially developed countries. But I think they could play a bigger part in the microeconomic sphere. In terms of allowing lay people to understand the mechanics of different arguments, right? And again, going back to economic regulation and policy, which is what I focused on in terms of my teaching over several years and increasingly in my research, these claims about regulation, will they promote greater economic efficiency, for example? Will they lead to more innovation? Will they create more jobs or improve public safety? We have powerful economic models that are, start from si simple foundations that can help us gain traction on this. And then folks like James, Rachel, and even myself can think of the evidence we would put forth to defend any of these claims about the consequences. But I do think starting at first principles is important with the tools of microeconomics, the machinery, but even before that, the tools of political economy, where you understand 
that there are self-interested actors that are involved in policy debates and that create the narratives, but they have ideological or partisan or special interest agendas. So I want to take a step back here and um, recapitulate what James was saying, was that science or the scientific method gives you the hope that maybe we can create policies that are maybe objectively more productive in, in, in some way. But now, uh, Victor, you're suggesting that most of the time, or in, in a lot of cases, that's not what happens, right? But because rather um, well-connected, wealthy, influential interests somehow dominate the conversation. First of all, what is that conversation that you're, that you're talking about that is being dominated? And um, is there any, what, what exactly are you suggesting to circumvent this issue? Are you suggesting that we should maybe create more technocratic styles of government? Well, I'll just say very quickly that I think, you know, let's let's take some, let, let's take an institution that is is the is probably the least worst version of what Victor said, which is it, it's not going to be entirely captured by partisan political interests, but it might be somewhat ideological, like what Rachel said. So let's just take the World Bank as kind of an example. Nick, in answer to your question, you know, everybody who works at the World Bank, in my experience, definitely wants to, you know, improve the world and help the world and help and improve human betterment. And it's an institution, right? So personalities matter, bureaucracies matter, you know, vested interests, captured interests matter, as well as the people that are donating money. Uh, they matter in terms of what they want, as well as the people receiving the money and whether or not the programs that the World Bank pursues are actually working. Everyone at the World Bank can have the same goal, right, to uh, alleviate global poverty. But even so, and, and everybody at the World Bank could then say, well, the way that we're going to meet that goal is we're going to adopt a process called the scientific method, where we just basically test the different ideas uh, that we have, specifically policies that we have, to get towards that goal. And we could use the scientific method to do that. Okay, and then we could make decisions based on that about then the best way to allocate our budgets and the best way to, as Rachel said, scale up or, or improve things and tailor it. But realize two things. First of all, the question of whether to use the scientific method and to use serious evaluation strategies and the use of data to answer those questions is itself a political question. And to me, that, that you know, Victor talking about the political economy really matters. So you have to understand the political economy of the World Bank and, it's, uh, and how it is structured, but also the environment that it's operating in to see that even their reliance on science and evidence-based policymaking is itself a political question that it has to answer. And as Rachel correctly said, it really didn't do that in way, you know, it's really sort of done that more recently in the last two decades, but didn't necessarily do it the way we would consider the most scientific before that. But even so, even once you've now used the scientific method, you have evidence-based policymaking, there are a lot of questions that come into play that even separate and apart from the sort of political economy uh, questions that Victor raised are just basically ethical questions. You know, what if you have two policies that show you for a dollar you can, you can help a person in Bangladesh or you can spend that dollar and help a person in Kenya, but you only have one dollar to spend. So where are you going to spend it? And we can show you that in both cases, it will improve the livelihood of those two people in those two countries to the same degree, right? So science allows us a process to, get, to allow us to use evidence to help us make decisions, but science very rarely, I think, gives us the, uh, the, the a decision that is not going to be in the absence of other considerations that, that Victor mentioned, but also just ethical considerations, because there's always trade-offs that, be, that have to be considered, in addition to whether or not people want to use the scientific method at all and how they try to answer or, or, or go after the goals that, and the objectives that they care about. Yeah, no, I was trying, James, as you, were, as you were talking, I was trying to think if, you know, if I could think of examples of where we might use science to inform, you know, not just the kind of results of a policy, but what, you know, as an economist, we might say, you know, our objective function is. And I think there's, you know, I, I, I agree with you, James, that fundamentally, you know, science isn't going to kind of tell us, you know, kind of, do we spend the, the dollar on in Kenya or, or in Bangladesh? You know, we, we, it might kind of broadly give us some, some, guidelines for if we want to, you know, kind of maximize the, you know, the kind of welfare that that dollar creates. Um, and I'm thinking about, you know, kind of evidence in economics that, um, you know, what an economist would call the um, decreasing marginal utility of income or money. 
you know, we can kind of use revealed preference. So kind of, you know, a testable, you know, kind of scientific based uh, premise about, you know, do people, do people behave as though they're risk averse, you know, is the marginal dollar really, really valuable to a poorer person. And so I think, you know, given that, you know, we do have evidence that people behave that, you know, behave as though they're risk averse, which gives us evidence, the marginal dollar is really valuable to poor people. It may kind of give us some broad principles like money will be, you know, it, it's extra effective to give money to, to, you know, to the poorest people. And I, I guess effective is probably the wrong word there. So let me rephrase, you know, it's kind of, it, it's extra welfare enhancing. And so, uh, and, and so I think we can kind of bring in science to the kind of, to, to thinking about what, you know, our objective function as policymakers should be. But as I mentioned, I still kind of fundamentally agree with you that it's not going to, objectively let science tell us, you know, kind of how policymakers should behave. Um, you know, that there's, you know, there is going to fundamentally be kind of a, you know, whether we call it a values or ethics or, or one of those words that, you know, science can't kind of totally do that, you know, kind of do it all itself, even if we're kind of bringing in science to that, that conversation. Right. So there's no way to depoliticize science. Nick, I Please think react. maybe that's true, but there's a way to shrink the space occupied by ideology shrink it down to its to the size i think it deserves which is much less than it, it currently occupies i think ideology has an outsized influence and as scientists we can shrink that space and say wait a second are these articles of faith or can we actually adduce evidence to figure out whether the claims made by people who espouse ideological positions or partisan positions are false or that we can at least tentatively reject them with evidence. So let me go back to the regulation of the economy, if that's okay. So often with regulations of the, uh, uh, the regulation of the economy, you have debates by players trying to divide the spoils articulated in the language of what's best for society or what's best for economic efficiency, right? So let me give you an example of what I mean. So what do I mean by players who are fighting over the spoils of different uh, economic activities, trying to convince others that their pet regulations they'd like to increase their share of the profits are good for society too. Especially in a globalized world, most supply chains are vertically disintegrated to a large degree, okay? There's folks at the top of the supply chain and there's folks in the middle and then there's folks at the bottom, right? The folks at the top usually are producing ideas or the more intangible aspects of a certain good that's sold in a market. The folks at the bottom are maybe producing or transforming inputs into a finished product and distributing it. And so what they're involved in is exchanges with consumers that generate a surplus, right? Consumers benefit in a voluntary exchange because they're made better off by products and services that they can't make on their own. And producers are better off because given whatever opportunity costs they have, they realize that the price they get on the market coaxes them into that market versus the other things they could do with their time and resources. But it's really the people in the supply chain that we should care about when we think about regulation, because they're better organized and have a bigger stake, let's say, in the profits, in the producer surplus, in the part of the surplus where they're gaining, so are consumers, but now we're looking at how they gain in this uh, exchange with consumers. And the fights between themselves, those are the ones that get hijacked to make it seem like what is best for them and their share of the spoils is also better for consumers or better for workers. Let me now get very tangible. I've been involved uh, for many years in the debate over intellectual property rights. Not as a central player, but as someone who's tried to teach the nuts and bolts of the economics of this and the evidence of this to policymakers. Um, increasingly in my own research though, I've uh, gravitated towards those questions. And there, the people at the top of the chain, they specialize in ideas, and those at the bottom of the chain specialize in making and distributing products. 
And so those at the top of the chain, they want royalties for their ideas and they want stronger intellectual property rights. Uh, let's say the designers of chips that go into smartphones. Those at the bottom though, they wanna pay less money to those at the top in the way of royalties. They wanna negotiate better terms for themselves because they're competing over the spoils with those at the top. There's a battle over the producer surplus, so to speak, right? And in order to do that, in order to compete over better terms, they don't only negotiate with those at the top, let's say the designers of the chips and the smartphones, but they go out to the public sphere and the political arena. And they say things like, well, those at the top of the chain, the idea makers, they're just rent seekers. What they're trying to do is price monopolistically or engage in anti-competitive practices with their claims for stronger intellectual property rights. Or they're, they're engaged in frivolous lawsuits that are harming consumers and innovation. Or they're just contributing very little to that value chain. So they should get a much smaller cut of the profits. And by the way, if they do, this will be better for society because if they get a smaller cut and we cut them down to size, that'll mean there'll be lower prices and more innovation. Well, those at the top of the chain, those producing the ideas, come right back and they overinflate perhaps the importance of the intellectual property, or they try to strengthen their property rights at the expense of other players in the chain. Notice how this is a fight between folks over the spoils, right? Not over the size of the pie, but they make claims about the size of the pie and how convenient that they choose the policies that help them gain larger shares of the profits to say, and if you enact these policies we like, it'll make society better off as well. That's where we can shrink ideology and special interest as scientists, right? Especially political economists, because we can understand the distributional struggle and then say, let's take these claims about the size of the pie and see if they're true. Does policy X really affect other firms' business strategy? Does it affect their investment decisions and innovation policies? Or does policy X affect firms' revenues, their budgets, or their profits, right? Or we could look at the proposed regulation on market outcomes that are structural. Does policy X affect the structure of a particular market in terms of how concentrated it is, in terms of the level of competition between firms? Does it affect the prices paid for products? Or does policy X affect the actual products and their quality? In other words, innovation, right? And it, when it comes to intellectual property, for example, one could look at the strengths of intellectual property on a host of dimensions and look at all these outcomes of interest, right? That's just one example of things I've worked on. But you can do this for any one issue when it comes to economic regulation. And that's where I think... Yes, there's more of a role, maybe not for technocracy, but for economic literacy and the ability of political economists to disseminate what they understand about the machinery of microeconomics and research designs that can, can gain traction on these questions. All right, I want to pick up this thread and, and ask the question to all of you again. Um, what Victor is suggesting is that I can use science or the scientific method or something like that to answer questions like, for myself, right, as an observer of politics, as a voter potentially, as, 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 as an economic consumer, whatever, I can use the scientific methods to answer questions like, what is the national interest? Could you speak to how science is superior to, say, ideology in answering a question like that? And crucially, how do I detect um, what Victor is describing when influential interests are merely cloaking their self-interest in scientific language, right? To try to convince me that uh, something that is benefiting them is really somehow scientific. James, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer is what Victor said, which is economic literacy, but that's sort of really broadly understood to be kind of a, an understanding of political economy in general. Because the case I'm thinking of is, you know, let's just look at the politicization of how we define that pie that Victor was talking about at the outset, okay? look in the United States right now, the response over COVID. If you think the government's only pie that it cares about is one with respect to public health outcomes, and the only thing that the government is gonna make policies on, okay, is with respect to decisions that only affect public health 
and their goal is to limit the spread of the virus, right? Then the policy direction that you know the United States had or any other country had in, in February, March was pretty clear, right? Almost complete, you know, total lockdown and the absence of a vaccine or treatment or wide scale testing that a, a lockdown would help you stop the control of the spread of the virus. So if that's your only goal, then your policy is pretty clear. However, you could totally reject that as being a, a, the pie that you care about and you could politicize something else and say, you know, we don't care about public health outcomes. The government is not gonna create policies on public health. Instead, the government is only gonna create policies with respect to the economy. Okay, well, if that's true, then the government might consider the effects of a lockdown for public health reasons on the economy, but it's not going to care in that view about what the public health outcomes are. It's only gonna care about what is good or bad for the economy. Well, if the government does that, then I'm guessing a lot of economists would believe that the lockdown is gonna be pretty hard on the economy, at least in the short term. So what is a government to do if it says in the public health pie that we care about maximizing um, what we're able to do, we have a lockdown, but for the economy, we don't. How did, then does the government decide? The key thing that I think Victor is saying in answer to your question, Nick, is people have to realize that the government is doing all of those things at once. It's a single pie. All of those things go together and all of those things involve trade-offs. The government is never just creating policies on public health. They're just creating policies that regulate the economy. They're creating a basket of policies altogether. And so it's not just the trade-off in various public health policies to improve public health outcomes or economic policies to improve growth or employment. It's how does the government decide all of these things together at the same time? And then what are the trade-offs that it can and should make? Science helps at least use evidence or theories about how we might try to, as Victor and, and Rachel have said, either monetize those or, or put some sort of a you know, value value on or a function a value function on how to think about how to compare across various dimensions of policy you know what does it mean to save a life economically versus to save a life in public health but the fact of the matter is is that it's a single pie the government is making all manner of policies and all of these policies involve trade-offs and the politicization of this has become that the democrats are supporting sort of viewing the pie as a public health concern. Republicans are viewing the economy as the concern, and they're not realizing that whoever is elected in November has to care about both and, and legislate on both. And by the way, the American people are falling into this trap as well by viewing things as, as either one or the other and not re recognizing both. But the hard fact is, is that political leadership has to be very clear about what the trade-offs in all of the basket of policies that it has to legislate on, what those trade-offs are, be honest about them. And I think what we're saying is, you know, using data, using, you know, not just using ideology, not just discarding certain things because they're inconvenient, but, but really using data and trying to inform this as much as possible. And then also as a government or, you know, and this is a lesson they can learn from scientists, you know, having some humility, saying the things that they can't do or, or being honest about what the, the, the tough trade-offs are going to be. And that any one decision is going to have some negative consequence on people, but they're doing it for these reasons. And this is why, and this is what it's based on. And so I think the politicization of just policymaking in general has gotten people to forget about that every policy pursued has some kind of trade-off that doesn't just affect the distribution, but affects the total amount of anything that the government has to work with at, at the outset, and then the social good that it can actually try to affect um, in terms of its policies. And that to me is the, is the huge problem with what Victor is saying in this current moment. Thank you, Rachel, did you wanna add anything? Yeah, yeah, no, I was um, uh, just going to build on what James said. Um, and um, I don't know whether you would consider this, you know, part of economic literacy or its own thing. I, I think it's kind of it's related but distinct that, you know, kind of statistical literacy so that you can kind of get date, you can often cut data in different ways to tell whatever story you'd like, you know, the famous quote about lies, damn lies and statistics. Uh, I mean, I think that's that's not, you know, it's not just a throwaway line, like is, you know, economics papers that have kind of pointed out that they've kind of, you know, if you collect hundreds of data, hundreds of data on hundreds of variables, you can kind of make kind of, you know, different collections of those variables to tell whatever story that um, that you'd like. And so I think it's, you know, it's a question of kind of, you know, understanding like, you know, what's the basic, you know, kind of what are the basic statistical tests that we're using? But also, you know, kind of more, I don't know if I want to say more sophisticated, but subtle points about what, you know, a statistician would call multiple testing, you know, that if you test 
hundreds of hypotheses, even, you know, even hypotheses that aren't actually true, five out of a hundred will kind of come up, you know, is looking kind of, you know, statistically significant, you know, not just due to chance, even though they are due to chance. If you just kind of, you know, if you roll the dice enough times, you're going to get some kind of pretty extreme outcomes. And so helping, you know, both kind of helping, you know, if people kind of know that that's going on, I think that helps. And also if policymakers and just the general public, uh, I mean, this is getting, I guess, a little subtle to kind of for, for everybody to understand, but I think it's, you know, it's certainly kind of, it's people that are kind of, you know, the scientific experts that would interact with evidence and, and data, you know, things like pre-registering uh, studies to try to kind of keep, you know, the people doing the studies from doing exactly the cherry picking that, the, that I was talking about, which, which, by the way, can be, you know, it can be subconscious. It's not necessarily some evil manipulation. It could just be that, you know, you kind of have this, even the most kind of rigorous empirical person, you know, has their, you know, kind of belief coming in. It doesn't have to be based on um, ideology. It can be based on, you know, you know, well, <laughs> well-motivated theory, but even kind of the, you know, the most careful empirical researcher kind of needs that opportunity to tie their hands to say, you know, I'm not going to kind of let, you know, I'm not going to kind of let my subconsciously let any sort of bias come come into the work. So, and I guess I kind of conflated two things in this answer. One is kind of statistical literacy and the other is things primarily that, you know, kind of empirical social scientists should be doing, you know, themselves. Um, but, but I think, I think they relate in the sense that it's, it's kind of useful at least for the, you know, the consumers of this policy evidence to kind of know that those type of initiatives are going on. Yeah, I do think those things relate. Thank you very much for this. Uh, Victor, what do you think? So just let's try to circle back. What uh, is the gist here of the question now? Is it about what should we do prescriptively? Or is it, try to remind me exactly what our objective is here. Right. I think the question is, how do I detect when self-interest is being cloaked as scientifically um, sold as national interest, for example? And how the answer to that is always, always assume that's the case. That's the default. <laughs> okay. And, and how do I then move on from that? How do I actually use the scientific method to effectively find out what something like the national interest would actually be? Well, let me go back to the four pillars of evidence-based policy as I understand them and as I teach it. And let me make a plug for what we do here at the forum. Okay. The first thing I'll say, what are the four pillars to remind you of how I began, right? When you first passed the mic to me. Fluency in the details of the policy. Second, political economy. Who are the self-interested players and where are the distributional struggles about the spoils of the pie? Third, microeconomics about what leads to the pie being bigger or smaller. And it doesn't just have to be GDP. It could be like James said, knowledge of public health uh, and the foundations of public health to make society healthier or less healthy, right? I will speak of economics because that's what I'm uh, used to doing, but it doesn't necessarily have to be dollars and cents. And of course, public health itself can be translated into the measuring rod of money, which is what economics does with everything, right? Uh, because there's scarce resources and trade-offs. Uh, and it's hard to have an objective value system that's not based on religion or metaphysics, so we can use the intersubjective currency, which is money, right, and put monetary uh, value on things. And then the last thing is the scientific method. And this cues on what Rachel said, scientific literacy and a basic understanding of what it is that uh, scientists do when they make descriptive and causal claims in terms of how confident we can be in those uh, claims, statistically speaking, and in terms of the magnitude of the effect of the claims they make. So let me make a, a, a summary of each of these four quickly and then tell you why uh, the forum is special. And, and more vehicles like the forum, I think, should be, uh, you know, this is very self-interested, so everyone should be skeptical, but for, uh, vehicles like our forum should really be uh, privileged in the debates about policy. So fluency in the details means the low-hanging fruit. It doesn't necessarily mean high-powered statistical knowledge, right? It means just understanding the assumptions made by regulation advocates and the assumption made by their critics, right? 
It means just understanding or identifying the descriptive and causal claims they make about the world. And it means having a rudimentary understanding about what the fallacies in their logic and evidence might be. So this is even before testing anything with the scientific method, being aware of the landscape is important and identifying these things about the advocates and the critics of certain policies. As I've said several times, and I'll say over and over, the political economy dimension is important, right? Identify the politics behind the debates and the winners and losers from possible policies or regulations. And then you can kind of work backwards and be like, well, now I understand how they might be prejudiced in finding a certain position or might dress up their own interest in the spoils of the regulation in the language of what's best for society. The third thing, as I've said several times, and I've been supported by James and Rachel, microeconomics actually, I think, is underappreciated as much as people criticize it for several reasons, right? Because it at least gives you a default theory of the mechanics, right, of the logic behind position, behind positions that are taken in debates, right? And as I said, this means understanding basic supply and demand, trade-offs involved, which James spoke very eloquently to. And the behavioral adjustments, I think, is key. We haven't spoken so, too much about this, but it's important. The perverse incentives regulations create or policies create so that you might actually not get the intended effect because of the strategic adjustment of uh, actors to the policy or to try to change the policy. And then I'll just finish off with the scientific method. You know, sometimes the scientific method is overcomplicated in the way we present it to people. James and Rachel have both spoken about the logic of counterfactuals. And I think understanding that logic might be more important than understanding, let's say, the specifics of statistical tests or some of the anecdotes or data that are thrown to you that might be uh, biased, right? And just basic um, points of literacy on this is always try to get leverage by maximizing the data points you have to work with, right? Policy change is often about a discrete one-off change. Let's say, let's change the minimum wage versus keep it the same or something like that. But Often policymakers have no incentive or opportunity to actually exploit many more observations, let's say, about the minimum wage. So they might pronounce that a national minimum wage or a change to the national minimum wage laws would be effective. It's up to folks like us, scientists, or just lay people to say, well, we have 50 states and many counties within those states and many cities within those counties that have probably experimented with minimum wage laws, right? So let's exploit that variation to maximize our data points, right? And look at states that have adopted the policy and some who have not, variation in the timing of adoption, or variation into, in the degree to which some uh, cities adopt the policy and others do not. Aside from maximizing data points, the most important literacy advancement or enhancement folks could make is to understand what counterfactuals mean, right? The logic of counterfactuals, right? And to try to think about observational data in a way that mimics that logic. To think about why an experiment is a gold standard in terms of randomized control trials, where the assignment to the treatment is random, and what you might do with the data that is thrown out by policymakers and the like to say, let me scrutinize the claims and, and ask, is that, are those claims vested in an approach that respects the logic of experimental design? In other words, to think about treatment and control groups. And one silver lining about the pandemic, you know, uh, I and others are gr grasping for silver lines to this cloud, is that these vaccine trials and the elevation of public health officials to important positions in the public debate are at least allowing people to be more conscious about what it means to randomize, to have experiments, and to have treatment and control groups, and why that's a good way to try to adjudicate claims about the world.
So I think advancing the positions James and Rachel specified with literacy around these topics in the pandemic, hopefully uh, there'll be a long uh, half-life to this being in people's imagination, especially as the uh, vaccine trials and the efficacy of the vaccines and the results start to trickle out and the media starts to expose it. It's our job as scientists, though, to hold the media accountable and not let them get caught up in what special interests might want to do to manipulate that logic and language in order to sell things that are good for them. Quickly jump, jump in and say that what I think a masterclass of this actually is by politicians. And exactly what Victor just described is, is uh, Governor Jay Inslee's response to COVID in the state of Washington. Now, you may, you may not like Jay Inslee for whatever reason. You may not be a Democrat. And you may not like the policies that he has implemented regarding COVID. But what Victor just described is something that he has been very good at doing, which is basically in his public statements and in press conferences, when he has anticipated the need to either communicate a policy or a policy change, he has consistently led that up with the, the process by which he's doing it and the, the reliance on data, the reliance on learning from other states, the reliance on what he's hearing from public health experts, and not, not in terms of a medical trial or an RCT like Victor said, but in terms of kind of counterfactual and experimentation, he's been very good at communicating, we're gonna try this, we're gonna see if it works, if it doesn't work, you know, to reduce the infection rate or something like that, then I'm gonna try something else. And that's something else will probably look like this. But if we try this and it works, we're going to also keep doing it. And he and I think, you know, not having watched this play out in any other state other than Washington, I think he's done a lot to reassure the public that, again, even if you don't necessarily like him or, or the actual policy, by being transparent about his process and his reliance on data and making that decision, as opposed to just making it for you know, obviously transparent political reasons, which could actually be what he's actually doing. But in terms of his, his, the way he's communicating it, it's very much based on science and very much based on data. And I think that gives reassurances to the public who don't know a lot about this virus, don't know a lot about public health, but by explaining policies in this way, they, they tend to probably follow them and believe in them because they've been communicated in that scientific way. I, now, that doesn't mean that everybody believes it, that everybody follows it. A lot of people can reject it. But I think a lot of the success of COVID policy has been based on politicians' ability to communicate the science behind why they're, they're picking that policy. And I think that can help gain the public's confidence and then help hopefully change their behavior. Well, thank you, everyone. That's a great note to end on. Thank you, James. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Victor. If you want to hear more about evidence-based policy, be sure to check out the UW Political Economy Forum's website, our blog posts, and other podcasts. See you next time. Thank you.